This is Tim Mackesy from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm pleased to be on this evening with Dr. Lee Reeves. Lee and I go back a while. I got involved in the NSA, which might have still been the NSP at the time. And I was working at a hotel in downtown Atlanta and going to support groups and Toastmasters. And I learned of this man who's, who had a job that required a lot of talking. And one of my goals was to be self-employed in some business. And I knew that Dr. Reeves was in a business, ran a business where talking was a premium. And I was facing my stuttering at a hotel front desk, checking people in, checking people out pre-internet. I would sometimes have 50 people lined up I would get the phone in front of strangers. I would make phone calls on behalf of strangers. Maybe if they came to the front desk and said there weren't towels, I had to make a phone call on their behalf. If you don't stutter, this story is real boring. But I'm here I am facing my stuttering, two Toastmasters clubs a week, front desk of a hotel, involved in the NSA, and I learn of Lee Reeves. And I reach out. And I asked him to fly to Atlanta, Georgia to do his first workshop. So I'm really happy to have him here tonight. And I want to hear from you, Lee. How did your, your stuttering affect you when, when you were a child? First of all, uh, hey there, Tim. It's just uh, great to be here with you and to hear your voice on the other end of this. Uh, we do indeed go back a long way. So thanks for inviting me. Pleasure. Um, yeah, I began, you know, my story is not much different than most others of us who stutter. Um, I grew up uh, knowing now that I began to stutter when I was about three or, uh, or so. And uh, my memories, um, of myself stuttering don't really begin till I'm about nine. Although I know that I stuttered prior to that, but you know, my parents filled me in on that information. But my first recollection of stuttering was when, uh, my family made a move from Minnesota, uh, to Texas and during the summer and, and, uh, sitting out on the back fence, uh, not knowing anybody, watching kids in the in the neighborhood or in the yard next to me playing cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians and sitting on the fence like any other kid hoping, you know, that you'd be noticed or seen and trying to meet them. And they finally saw me, walked over and, and asked me what my name was. And uh, I really struggled um, trying to say Lee. And uh, what finally came out was uh, Rusty. Mm. <laughs> Um, and Rusty came out because that's what my grandmother called me. She didn't ever like the name Lee. She thought that, uh, I was a Texas boy and I should have, uh, a Texas name. So she always called me Rusty. And that's the name that came out that day. And so the kids in the neighborhood, uh, always knew me by Rusty, um, even to this day, the only group that did. So, but I noticed then when they came over and trying to say my name, that was really the first recollection that I have. And it's very vivid that it was really tough for me, very embarrassing. And so, mm. you know, my childhood was again, not like 
not unlike any others, I had a tough time in school and didn't want to raise my hand in class or answer questions. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, uh, it was a struggle, but we find ways to cope. We find ways to get by. Mm -hmm. You have to, did you have a specific, a word or two besides Lee that was really difficult? And did you have a unique stutter, like a particular way of blocking? Well, my stuttering was by blocks. I, I didn't have a lot of repetitions, uh, some prolongations, I guess. But when I got stuck, I, I would really get stuck. And, um, you know, I was a pretty non-discriminatory stutterer. I could stutter on just about any sound or any word mm -hmm. given the right situation. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, plosives, I think, were the what gave me the most problem. Uh, you know, things that there were, where my lips or tongue teeth had to come in contact with each other. Yeah. Uh, that's where I really got blocked. Yeah. So here's a question. When you were a kid, not now, when you were a kid, what did it mean to you to stutter? Oh, it was, uh, it was terrifying. Um, you know, I, I was fearful. I, I oftentimes felt uh, inferior, uh, at least in terms of speaking, uh, mm -hmm. my class performance, I think suffered some from that. I wasn't, you know, an A student in school. I was a BC student. I got by, but, uh, you know, speaking, um, you know, with my friends and getting around, I mean, we, we cope, we get by you'd kid and, and, and have friends and that sort of thing. But, but in class or when, you know, when the cameras were on and the lights were on, it was always a real struggle and very embarrassing. Mm -hmm. We all know the expression, the ABCs of stuttering, the affect, the behavior, and the, and, and the cognitions. It's just so important as you tell us about fear of stuttering and you know, f feeling bad about it, that we who treat stuttering have to remember that's more than bumpy words. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's just on the, you know, you've heard of the iceberg. That's just the surface stuff that folks that see what goes on below that the surface mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, 90, 95% of what, what the phenomena is about, what we that's deal right. with on a daily basis, every that's time right. we open our mouth or go into a situation, it's, uh, it, it's not easy. Yeah. It's that first impression you, maybe you're at camp in the summer and you walk up to some kids because you want to join in and what they're doing and you have a huge stutter and they mock you, they mimic or whatever. And it's that first impression. It's very difficult. Um, so anyone that I always admire if someone really any career choice, someone who goes into law, a nurse who stutters, a teacher who stutters, but I also want to say that just being a, being a mother or a father or a waiter or waitress, if you stutter, you understand how any of those situations can be difficult. And I want to know, how did you get through medical school with a stutter? Well, that was the toughest part of my life. Uh, my first year in college, I almost flunked out. Uh, you know, fortunately I didn't because I don't know what I would have done after that, but, um, I hung on by the skin of my teeth and then sort of transitioned into making, uh, school, a a work habit. I mean, I knew what I had to do to get into veterinary school, um, and I wasn't doing it. So, uh, fortunately I've 
uh, was able to change my my uh, academic career around and over the next couple of three years brought my grades up to a point where uh, for whatever reason they decided to give me a chance and let me into vet school mm-hmm. uh, but I was a severe stutterer at that time I was uh, you know I was pretty significant in high school and didn't think things could get much worse but uh, when I left and went uh, to college uh, 2,000 miles away from home uh, I it got significantly more difficult Mm-hmm. So, but I, you know, I used humor. That's how I got through in my life. Really. I, I always was able to be kind of self deprecating and, yeah. and used, used humor to get around my stuttering and speech. And, and I was an athlete, so I was able to excel in other areas and overcompensate for my inability to speak. And, um, I sang in the choir. I mean, there were other things that I did through life that, you know, were able to get me accepted uh, in a variety of ways. But my first year in vet school was, was probably the most traumatic, um, year of, of my life other than my first year in college, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also started therapy. I finally found a, a therapist, uh, my first year, just before I started my first year of veterinary school. Okay. And, you know, I was ready. I, uh, my back was against the wall. I knew I had to do something. They had let me in to veterinary school. And now, you know, I was about to pursue a, a dream that I'd had since I was five years old and I still couldn't say my name uh, mm-hmm. or put two sentences uh, together. So I, I knew I had, I had to do something. And so I sought out the help of finally found a, a, a therapist. And um, that was, that was what really changed things around for me. It was the right time, the right place and the right therapist and the right therapy. Wonderful. May I ask, was there any time in the program of vet school where someone brought your speech to your attention, like, Hey, you should really work on that or anything. You know, not that I know to my face, um, you know, they, they wouldn't call on me in class and I was grateful for that actually. Gotcha. Uh, There's a lot of pressure. Uh, veterinary school is highly competitive. And, um, uh, even once you get into, into the curriculum, there were 135 of us and we competed like cats and dogs. And, so it was, there was a lot of pressure all the time, but I would say that, um, yeah, I don't, at least not to my face. I don't remember being made fun of a lot because again, when I would have a block and it would be obvious and I'd have a humdinger, you know, I would just say something stupid. I mean, I'd make fun of myself. I would do something to break the ice mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it helped me to get by. Gotcha. There was a time when I was in grad school and somebody on faculty where I went to graduate school did say, quote unquote, I think you stutter too much to become a speech pathologist. <laughs> Fortunately, I had extremely tough skin and was like, okay, whatever. Well, I had a, a similar, and I think many of us do. I had a guidance counselor that uh, wanted me to consider another career. Uh, you know, was I, was, was mm-hmm. I dead set on being a vet? And I said, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else you want to do? No. Well, you, are you sure uh, you'll be able to do that? And they weren't really talking about my academics. Yeah. When I was at the, at the front desk of the hotel, first of all, I carried bags you know, up to rooms. And I used to look at the front desk and say, there is no way, Jose, that I could ever stand behind that desk. Yeah. One day, by the grace of God, I did. 
I had the courage to say, I want to work at the front desk. I did that for a while. And then I went into management training, but the interview for management training, the gentleman who interviewed me, he had an office, he used to smoke in his office and he, he had bifocals on the tip of his nose and he twisted his cigarette and he looked up with the glasses down his nose and said, with your stutter, are you sure you can do it? And I know my face was like a tomato. And I said, yes, I can do it. He said, okay, then. So it was an honest question. We had never talked about it before, but obviously had seen plenty of it. Um, the important thing is he, if I believed in myself, he believed in me. So I, when I left the hotel industry, my last department, I managed 124 people and I was very proud of that. I couldn't believe it, but the hours were terrible. So I went on a long ride with my father to go fishing, a two hour ride. I said, dad, I'm thinking about going to graduate school for speech pathology, speech pathology. It always helps to be able to say it. And, um, so here I am, that was like 30 years ago. But um, well, it, what you um, had, but what you what what you experienced, Tim, is not unlike what I experienced. You, mm -hmm. you had somebody, uh, even a stranger, a boss who gave you a chance, who believed in you and, and, mm -hmm. and thought more of you than you thought of yourself. Perhaps. Bingo. Uh, yes. My, my mentor was Dr. Malnati. Uh, yeah, I went to work for him when I was in high school. And, um, you know, there's a long story. I won't go into the story because it's a lengthy one, but um, he hired me. Um, and we never talked about my stuttering, but he, you know, he asked me to go out and call somebody in from the waiting room or answer the phone. And, and when I couldn't get anything out, he would just take the phone, you know, from my hand and go on with the phone call. And mm -hmm. next time the phone rang, he said, answer the phone. And he, again, we never talked about my stuttering, yes. but he never uh, expected anything less of me. That's nice. I would imagine, you know, I own dogs. I have two dogs. I'm a pet fanatic, especially dogs. And I can imagine early in your career and even now, but in the beginning, those very sensitive phone calls where we may have to put your dog down. You might have to consider it. Um, we got into the procedure and things are worse. We found some cancer. Maybe somebody is implying that you are guilty of malpractice. I don't know, but I can imagine that you've had some extremely emotional people. Is that right? Well, sure. I mean, that happens in every walk of life. And sure, there are times when, uh, when you don't want to have, you know, when there are conversations that you'd rather not have on a variety of issues, but, yep. um, you know, and, but, um, you know, it's just, that's the way life is for us. That's, that's solid. Did you find a way to compose yourself in those moments when someone's really pointing a finger at you, for example? Well, by the time I got into practice, uh, which is uh, after I graduated veterinary school, I'd, as I said, I'd had very successful therapy and I was pretty much on cloud nine. I'd never had a tongue before. I never had a voice. I'd never been able to speak. Gotcha. 
freely. Uh, I still stuttered, of course, but I was, you know, what I'd call a fluent stutterer. I had all the, the strategies and tools and voluntary stuttering and gotcha. pullouts and easy, all that stuff. And I knew how to do it, but, and I was doing really good. And then I had a relapse. And, um, when, when that happened, I, uh, went into quite a tailspin and, uh, my speech really began to give me problems again. I just opened my own practice. And, um, so I was struggling quite a bit at that mm. time, but, um, that's, you know, that's when I decided to, uh, start my second, uh, self-help group, uh, there here in Dallas. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, there were just times that it was, that it was hard. And, uh, uh, when you'd know all this, all the strategies, things you're supposed to do, but somehow or other, you just couldn't quite get it to work. You couldn't pull it off. And, um, I remember a pharmacist one time hung up on me. I was, mm -hmm. I was calling in a prescription and I had a really long block. Uh, I don't know what the medication was, but I couldn't, I, and there was just silence and she hung up yeah. and I was so angry. I picked the phone back up, called back and I said, this is Dr. Reeves. Do you know who, what you just did? And I just gave her the riot act. Mm. I felt really badly. And you know, I said, look, I stutter. And you know, there are other people who stutter. And if you hang up on them, you know, how are they going to feel? And then I, and then I called her back a second time and said, you know, I'm sorry, you, you had no idea mm -hmm. what was on the other end of that phone and what you did was natural. And I, I'm sorry that I lashed out at you, but, uh, <laughs> but that was an experience. Yeah. My last name, I used to block with no sound come out and people would hang up on me. This is pre-caller ID. So I could hang up or be hung up on and they wouldn't know who called because nothing came out. So dating was a nightmare in high school. Meet a nice girl. And, you know, you had to actually call the home. Mom, dad, the brother, sister are going to answer. If there's five people in the family, there's a one out of five chance that the girl that you want to, um, to answer actually answers. So that was horrific for me. Um, our paths just crossed something that I, you know, I didn't know that early in your career that you had a, a, an exacerbation of your stuttering. When I got out of graduate school, I went into uh, acute care with stroke patients and yeah. I was walking around a hospital with a white lab coat with my name embroidered Tim Ackes's speech pathology. And if I walked up to a doctor or nurse or basically anybody, I thought their eyes were laser beamed on my name tag. And I projected my thoughts. If I stutter, they'll judge me. If I stutter, they'll think I'm a fraud, basically. Like the speech therapist can't talk. One of the hardest things was I was doing some part-time work at a hospital and I went through orientation and the person told me the following, you have to do your own paging. It's like, wait, what? So the entire four floors of a hospital were going to hear me page. Now, that to me was like touching a snake, a cobra, right? Like, are you kidding me? I've got a page, a four-story building where hundreds of people are going to hear me stutter? Because it comes back to the belief, 
if you stutter, everyone's going to go, who is that? Oh, that's the new speech therapist. Ah, they'll hire anybody. Hey, did you guys hear that? The speech therapist can't talk. So that day, first day, I knew I had to page somebody. I had to find a reason to page somebody. I had two choices. I could have paged from the hospital room with a patient laying there out cold, or I could do it at the nursing station. So I walked to the nursing station. I The speaker was above my head. I picked up the phone. I looked straight at a nurse and I paged like respiratory therapy 221, respiratory therapy 221. I walked away from the desk like I had just won $20 million because I faced my stuttering. But I knew if I tried to put off that paging thing, it was going to come back and bite me. Right. Mm -hmm. You understand when we try not to stutter, we hide it. We do a lot of tricks. It comes back to get us. And that brings me, you know, you're going into medicine having, and this is, you know, you were doing this pre-internet, so you couldn't send an email to confirm an appointment. You're doing a lot of phone work. So I want to, I want you to explain to us what this quote means to you. When the objective is clear enough, there's no obstacle. Hmm. Well, uh, it, it goes along, I think, with, uh, well, what I would say is that in my own life, uh, as I said earlier, I mean, I, I knew when I was five years old that I wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, mm. It was nothing in life else I wanted to do. So that was my objective. Um, and sure, I had setbacks and I had doubts. And there were times uh, when I was young and a teenager in my first year in college where, you know, I never thought that I would be able to end up doing what I was able to do. They, I, my stuttering was so severe. And, uh, I just, I just never thought I would, could do it, but something, uh, inside just kept saying, you know, that's the objective. That's what you want to do. And so I just kept at it. I think that, um, and I think that's what got me, me through If If I had not gotten into veterinary school, the first time I tried, I think I would have just asked them what the problem was and gone back to school more and applied again the next year. I, it, there was just nothing else in my, in my life that I wanted to do. And so I think your quote says that, you know, um, that when the objective is clear, there are no obstacles there. That was my objective. And um, there were plenty of obstacles, of course, or at least they mm -hmm. felt like it, but ultimately you know, I love that quote from Eleanor Roosevelt that, that, you know, says you gain strength and courage, you know, and confidence by the experiences in which you stop to look fear in the face. You know, she, mm -hmm. she said that you, uh, that you must do that, which you think you cannot do. And yes. um, I think that just has to do with what you're talking about, having an objective. There is a self-help book, Jeffers, um, feel the fear and do it anyways. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I know in your years and years and years in the community of stuttering, like any conference for the NSA could have, you know, 500, 600 people who stutter. You've met so many courageous people. And I've had the chance to help people become firefighters, nurses, doctors, attorneys, helped a child do his bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah 
give his speech for the Boy Scouts, whatever, you know, it's just so exciting. So then about two weeks ago, I did a, a podcast that's entitled the following. I'm terrified of snakes, but I have to work in the reptile house. And I just thought of that because we who stutter, we have to touch the snake. I mean, we have to go in the reptile house, which means introduce ourselves, make phone calls, order things that people who don't stutter take for granted. But it's a phobia for many people who stutter. For you, I think it was. For me, it was. We used to avoid in the classroom as children. So you're facing a phobia, which also makes speech therapy tricky when parents think it's just bumpy words. Like if David would use his strategies, his speech should be fine. But David shows up for soccer clinic and he wants his mom to walk up to the table to register because he's terrified to stutter. And mom goes, well, David, just use your strategies. But right. he's in a panic attack. He's got a phobia. So being a veterinarian, you may have a special twist on this. But what do you think of, of my title? I'm terrified of snakes, but I have to work in the reptile house. Well, I think it's terrific. It, you know, it has to do with systematic desensitization, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you you uh, you figure out a way to make that first step you know mm -hmm. it's it goes back to that eleanor roosevelt uh, quote that you you have to do that thing that you're afraid of mm -hmm. and you know i remember uh kind of like that if you had a rattlesnake inside of an aquarium that had a three inch glass you know when you first put your hand up against that glass if the rattlesnake sti uh, strikes at it you're going to pull your hand back it's just automatic Mm -hmm. um, and yet, as you begin to learn that that snake can't hurt you, can't come through the glass, you can sit there and hold your hand there all day long. But mm -hmm. it takes a while to learn that. And from from the phone situation, I remember very vividly the having to sitting in my therapist's office making cold calls mm -hmm. uh, to the theater downtown. That's when we actually used phones, and there was actually someone answering it on the other yeah. end but asking them what time a certain show started or asking them if something's playing. And I was just terrified to do that with my therapist, even sitting right there mm -hmm. and trying to get finally understanding that it didn't make two hoots to a holler. I, that person didn't know me. I didn't know them. Right. And what was the worst thing that could happen? They could hang up on me. Well, so what? But that's not the way it felt the first time or the second time or that's even right. maybe the 10th time. But eventually it got easier. Was part of your therapy to do v voluntary stuttering? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Isn't that money? Oh, it, it yes. And, and you know, the, 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 the concept of voluntary stuttering has, has changed a bit. When I, ha when I was doing it, it was sort of an advanced um, strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. Today, I think they're beginning to use it very you know, early in the process or some are, mm -hmm. but yeah, it was my go-to. That's right. And when I got out of veterinary school, that was my go-to strategy for the day. If I could just do a little voluntary stuttering early in the day, and just say, hi, I'm Dr. Reeves. How are you? That just seemed to set the day right. Um, so but... dig in just a little further, because it did two things for you. One was 
it reduced the meaning and the stigma you attached to stuttering. The second was the motor pathways. Yeah, right? that's absolutely correct. It does both. And the, uh, yeah, and the thing that uh, the, the first issue, Tim, had to do, and you've already touched on this, you know, doctors don't stutter. I mean, I couldn't possibly be a doctor stand across an exam table and stutter because that's just not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened, you know, looking back on it, my relapse essentially occurred because I was had so much fluency. I was doing so well. I still stuttered, but it, it was it was such an easy stutter. And I had so much control and management over it that I think I began to think that maybe I wasn't really a stutterer anymore. You're cured. Yeah. And the more I, you know, uh, tried not to stutter or avoided the situations just a tiny bit at a time, mm -hmm. just a little here, that was okay. You know, no big deal. I'll catch up tomorrow. But eventually it caught up with me. Yes. And, uh, threw me into a real tailspin. Right. You develop uh, a timeline of stuttering events or avoidance, fight or flight. They accumulate. You do not remove them from hard drive right? You remember them. You're not running your scan to find all the malware from these weeks or months of new stuttering events. And you have an exacerbation. You're back Absolutely. into fight or flight. Some of the avoidance stuff starts coming back in. And then it's right. a mess. I've been uh, as bold as to say that voluntary stuttering is an antibiotic. When I moved to Atlanta in 87 with a severe stutter, I was my own therapist. I had no job, no money, and didn't know anyone here. And I came here to house sit because <laughs> I had free, free lodging. But um, I had to deal with this. And I used to go to the shopping mall and I made myself do 30 fake stutters in 30 minutes. And then every night I did a minimum of 25 phone calls where I asked for myself at a gas station. Why gas stations? They answered quickly. So I had my big phone book. Those old phone books are about six inches thick in, in Atlanta. They're big. Fold over the page. I'd go through Shell, then Texaco, then whatever brands were there back in the day. And I probably called the same ones every third day. You know, is Tim Mackesy there? No, he no work here. They hang up. So, but it was, it was, it literally purged the infection from me. So I'm a huge fan of it. Well, you were, you were using it for the right reasons. I think one of the fallbacks with voluntary stuttering or any strategy mm -hmm. uh, that we use to help move our, our, our voices forward has to do with intent. Uh, and I'm a big believer in that, that I've, I've seen, and I think this happened to me, where I was using voluntary stuttering as an avoidance rather than using it oh. or reducing my anxiety and reducing uh, the neuromotor hmm. um, tension. And so I think while it's an incredible strategy, I love it. It's my favorite still. I think that you have to, that, that any of the strategies that folks you've use can turn into an avoidance. I guess that's possible. The first podcast I did in April, I I'm way, way late into podcasts, but um, the first one is titled purpose, intention and stuttering. And it talks about how people tend to have these 
complex web of avoidance tricks. And it teaches people how to examine them and to understand they have to dismantle all those avoidance strategies, which comes to our next quote. And this is one of my favorite Mandela quotes. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the triumph over it. So this speaks of you, man. When, when I think of Lee, I think of this quote. <laughs> Come on. Is there, well, is, there somebody, is there somebody that you know in, this, in, the, in the stuttering community that that quote reminds you of? Oh, I know I, there's hundreds. Oh, hundreds. Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I couldn't even begin to to list for you know yeah. a lot because that's the beauty of of being involved in self help and support organizations. I mean the 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 incredible changes that you can see in people's lives. But I guess one that would come to mind would be Russ Hicks, which you you yep. know. You know, Russ, uh, Russ hated uh, self-help. It's an interesting story how we met. But, you know, I, uh, we were at an open house with our kids. One, they, my, my daughter and his son about the same age and uh, went to the open house. And I heard him talking to one of the teachers. And he, you know, was struggling pretty good. And I walked over. Just after I had started uh, my group here mm -hmm. in Dallas, and I just walked over to him. And I said, yeah, I couldn't help but notice that uh, we have something in common. And so uh, talk about stuttering. And I said, I have a group. I'd you know, love for you to come. He didn't want anything to do with it. And uh, yep. so I kept after him and uh, it turned out that they got a puppy and, and unbeknownst to him or me, he shows up in my exam room. <laughs> no, you didn't. You used his pet as leverage. Yeah. About a month later. And I said, Oh yeah, you remember me? Uh, I've got a meeting Tuesday night. Why don't I come by your house? Uh, I'll be happy to drive you down there. He said, uh. so he went, agreed to go the first time on the way home. He, I said, how'd you like it? He said, nah, I didn't, I didn't care for that. And I, I didn't, I didn't like it at all. And I said, mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's a shame. I'll be by to pick you up next month. Ah. Uh so I went by his house and got him the next month. And at, by the third time, uh, he was hooked. And, you know, the rest is history. He became really a kind of Mr. NSA. And uh, he was a Toastmaster champion. And uh, Oh, that's right. Incredible human being. That's right. Yeah. yeah, we've jumped a little bit ahead, but it's good timing here. I was going to ask you, clearly, you have met people who are unwilling to go to a support group. and. I wrote an article for Letting Go some years ago. It was right about when the King's Speech came out. And it was talking about people who stutter being uncomfortable seeing someone stutter. Mm -hmm. When the King's Speech came out, I talked to you know hundreds of people. And there were three groups the way I saw it. One, I absolutely will not see it because I won't watch him stutter. Second group was every time Firth, the actor, spoke and he stuttered, I was uncomfortable, but I got through the movie. A small group, so it's not even thirds, a small group was finally a hero who stutters. Finally. I love the movie, right? But um, I also have been in and around support groups since circa like 88. 
And I know I've known people that absolutely positively will not go to one or they went to one, they took off. And my summary is this. If I am a person who stutters and I am seemingly unable to watch someone else stutter, I'm projecting my inner deep thoughts and feelings about my own stuttering into that other person. And I'm freaking out as I watch it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I agree with you completely. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, who are we to, to know what's going on inside of other folks? But I think that the, that type of response or reaction by many people just tells me that they really haven't come to terms with their own stuttering exactly themselves and wherever they are on that journey they're not really at a place where they can uh, openly deal with or be around someone else because it reminds them of themselves right um by the same token self-help is not for everyone uh, just mm-hmm. like therapy is not is not a one size that fits all and sometimes that has to do with expectations and things like that we can talk about that later but yeah, I think that 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 what you have said is correct. I think folks that are are uncomfortable around other people who stutter uh, are uncomfortable around themselves. Yes, I do know some children who were were recommended to go to a conference for stuttering, and they got to a conference and they freaked out. And I mean, I've, I've heard this firsthand from some parents. Well, we got there and we're there for 20 minutes and my child freaked out and we had, we had to leave. And obviously that child will need help. I guess the, as you said it, you said it, some people are not ready for self-help. Some people are not ready for support groups. So um, I learned it's not one size fits all and that, I should not force a child into a group setting with a bunch of people who stutter until I feel like they're ready because I want to keep a rapport with the child and the family. So, yes, and, and, but I'll say too, Tim, that I've heard the other side of that story mm-hmm. um, through the NS, my years in the NSA. I mm-hmm. hear stories where the first time uh, the, the kids come because they come because of their parents uh, mm-hmm. you know signed them up it sounds like a good idea it was recommended by their therapist and by golly they're going to go and the youngster um is just terrified and and uh won't go out of the room the first day yeah and maybe the second day you know they'll they'll go down you know to get something to eat and maybe they'll see some other kids by the third day they've made a friend or two and on the way home they're asking when is the next conference that's wonderful and the next year when they come back, I'll see their parents and say, well, you know, how's Jason or, or mm-hmm. how's Mary? And they say, well, I don't know. We got here, we unpacked and I haven't seen them since. Yeah, that's wonderful. So it can go either way. Yes. I think, I think we conclude that at the end of the day, um, it's in the best interest of anyone who stutters to be able to, to integrate with others who stutter. Um, it's very, very healthy. The, uh, I mean, we, we've covered a lot about how much the NSA means to you, how much support groups mean to you. I want to move on to your question. 
the expression disclosure, disclosing I stutter, has really been, become hot. I was at ASHA in November, I guess it was in Florida, where I last saw you. And several classes I talked, I went to, were talking about disclosure. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I'm a big believer in disclosure. Um, I think it's very health, healthy. Uh, and at some point, I think we all, um, if we're going to move past a certain point, have to you have to deal with that particular concept of mm -hmm. being okay enough with our stuttering to let it out and let other people know mm -hmm. that we stutter. The thing about it is that you know, I've no, grown, I've learned through the years that there's there's no right way or wrong way. There's no right time or wrong time. Mm -hmm. I think um, you know we can we can help folks with some different examples and some ideas and how tos and different ways. But ultimately, I think folks, when it's again like the desensitization thing, uh, you kind of got to put your toe in the water. Um, but I think once, once those of us who stutter can get to a point where we can talk openly with others about the fact that we stutter in some capacity, uh, mm -hmm. some manner, it, it lifts such a weight off of our shoulders, uh, that it, it frees us to be able to stutter, um, you know, and not worry as much about mm -hmm. it. Yes. The more a person identifies as a stutterer, um, the identity, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a stutterer. When people think of me, they just think of stuttering and they think of me as being awkward and whatnot. So the more their identity abs abs absorbed versus being a person who stutters, and well, the, Lee, yeah, that's right. Please go ahead. Yeah. So people um, being able to say, I stutter sometimes. So one of the ways and is really important for the, those of us who are, who are, are supporting kids with stuttering. We have to teach them different ways to advocate for themselves. Here's some examples. A curious, a curious peer who says, Tim, why do you go? I, I, I. If they're curious and nice, and I'm going to say, sometimes I stutter and I go to speech class or something. If it's snarky, if it's rude, if it's mocking, I want the kids to have a comeback. I stutter, so what? Or I stutter, grow up, push back, talk to your teachers. More and more of my kids who are in the, in the older grades are sending an email, you know, telling the teacher I stutter before they go to class or before they have to do something important in front of the classroom. And sometimes they have to remind the teacher through the year because teachers are busy, but let them know that, especially the older children who could be graded for us or ums, let the teacher know I have an authentic stutter. And so some of those us and ums are part of my stuttering. So be mindful when you're grading. Um, I think that um, it, that's exactly right and very true. I was just going to say that when when I was taught to disclose or when I went through the process of learning, if you will, to disclose, this was back in the 70s when I was uh, still in veterinary school, 
um, early 70s, uh, the, the concept or the idea was the reason to disclose was to put the listener at ease. Mm. That's what I was told. Uh, wow. If you do that, then it puts the listener at ease and then that helps them to not be so uptight and therefore helps you, etc. cetera. Mm. It took me many, many, many years to realize that that was bunk, that yeah. the reason to disclose is not, I, I could care less about the listener. <laughs> it, it's for me. And yep. if I can disclose on my own behalf, not on their behalf, but mm. on my behalf, then by extension, they're going to be at ease because I will, I will have put it out there uh, for myself, not for them. Yes. That comes back to purpose. Right. The purpose and intention for me to disclose is for me to be comfortable with who I am. Another way, as you said, to use humor and self-deprecating humor, it took me till I was at least 25 to do the following, you know, to have a big stutter and say, I'll spit it out. Like, (laughs) I'll spit it out Monday. It took me forever to be able to do that. Now you wrote an article on acceptance in letting go. And I had asked you if you'd be willing to read it. I think it's like two paragraphs. Yeah. And one of the big things I chose you to be on here this evening is to talk about acceptance, disclosure, self-help and so forth. But if you'd be so kind as to read these powerful words about acceptance. Sure, I'd be happy to. I wrote this article several years ago for Letting Go. And actually, it came from uh, Phil Schneider had asked me what if, if I would write something down about acceptance. And so this was my effort to do that. Uh, acceptance is a frequently discussed concept by those affected by stuttering. Because it is an abstract and often very personal concept, discussions can bring out strong emotions and opinions. Some have suggested that accepting one's stuttering is tantamount to giving up or giving in and thus deciding to remain locked in a world of fear and limited opportunity. Others have stated that acceptance means that it's not only okay to stutter, but that stuttering could and indeed should be worn or spoken like a badge of honor. Still others believe that acceptance is a necessary step for change to occur. Through my own journey with stuttering, I've come to believe that acceptance is reaching a state of mind that uh, in which we acknowledge both externally and internally that our inability to speak with the spontaneity and fluence and fluidity of others is real, but it is not our or anyone else's fault. That while stuttering is part of who we are, it does not define us or limit us. The concept uh, of acceptance does not mean that we're destined to remain at or even be satisfied with the condition in which we find ourselves. It does mean, however, that we have reached a point where we can make clear decisions on our own behalf without the baggage of the past holding us back or the blind optimism of the future jading our expectations for perfect speech. The decision to change the way we speak requires personal risk and will be met with both success and failure. However, with the foundation of acceptance, success is much more sustainable 
and failure is less destructive. Simply put, we cannot change the way we speak for any appreciable period of time unless we become comfortable with the idea that we are more than our stuttering and that we alone have the power to determine what to do about it. Accepting stuttering does not mean giving up. It is not the end, but rather the beginning. I love it. I want to thank Phil Schneider for asking you to write that. <laughs> yeah, he's a good friend. Yes. Um, sometimes, and you hit on some real important things, sometimes people take acceptance as akin to it is what it is. Accept your stuttering. But remember that stuttering is also a social anxiety per the D D DSM-5. You know, people who stutter tend to have social anxiety, the fear of stuttering. So let's pretend I sat down with therapist and they said, okay, so I've heard your story about stuttering. And so it's important for you to embrace and accept your stuttering. And that's true. However, the way it's spoken to the client, the person who stutters, I've heard from a lot of people, the way they took it was, it is what it is. So it's very important. I love the way you were very thorough with it, very thorough, which leads to something that some people are talking about. Acceptance leads to evolution. And as you said, it has to begin with acceptance to have appreciable change in speech over an extended time period. It begins with acceptance. Then I believe it leads to evolution that you evolve, you shed avoidance habits, you speak up, you disclose, maybe you're getting a support group or Toastmasters, and then you evolve. And I think acceptance is like the toll, the, the toll booth on the highway. You've got, you've got to pay that toll to take off. Um, well, it's certainly a, a stop along the way for sure. Yeah. And it's a big one. It is a big one. And, you know, it's not a linear, it's not linear. It, it, it's more like a spiral. You know, we oftentimes as we're younger and as we're working through our, um, our challenges with our speech, you know, sometimes it feels like we take a step or two forward and two or three back. And, yeah. um, you know, and it can be very discouraging when our expectations are, are higher than our ability to, um, you know, to reach our ultimate goal. And, and of course that ultimate goal is what is what's so critical. I think it has to do with what is our expectation. Uh, the more those of us who stutter, I mean, I, I stuttered today. I stuttered yesterday. I, I hope I'm going to stutter tomorrow because it means I'm still alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so if our expectations are too high, if they're, you know, I never want to stutter again. I don't want to have any disfluencies. I want to have, I want to speak like, you know, X, Y, or Z. That's a pretty high standard. And um, instead of, I really want to be a good communicator, you know, mm -hmm. I really want to be able to um, persuade folks or to get my point across whether I stutter or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think acceptance is certainly a, a, an incredible or a, an integral part along that journey. Um, but, you know, it, it's not linear. Uh, it kind of 
can be really evasive sometimes. Well said. And parents who grapple with maybe they're bringing their child to speech therapy and they're looking for the stuttering to be wiped out and eradicated and cured. Um, you know, it can be hard for them. So let's take a kid who's like 15 who has, could already have eight years of attempts to conceal and hide it, that we have to help that child go through these levels to really break through. Um, so that, that can be difficult for a parent to watch. Uh, what are your thoughts on, do you have any, for example, when parents set a pick for stuttering, they go to the teacher and say, I want David to do a show and tell in the privacy of the lunchroom with only you listening, or I want Claire to be able to video her talk. No one else can just Claire or always making phone calls, always speaking on behalf of the child. Do you have, do you have any thoughts on long-term e enabling? Well, yeah, I mean, I get every, every situation, every kid, every family is of course unique, as you know, when they're really different. I mean, I think the, the bottom line in those kinds of situations is that the parents uh, are fearful. They're, they're, they have fear about their child uh, being embarrassed or in which the, by extension is them. And my, uh, uh, my opinion about that is that we have to do everything we can to include parents in the education and the treatment of their child. You know, this is one of the things that I learned uh, through the process of self-help. And, it, you know, we started out as an adult group, uh, all of us, we were helping ourselves because we didn't think that the professional community was helping us very much. Mm -hmm. And at the time, rightfully so. And so we struck out, that was that whole movement was about. And then as, as I got more involved, um, you know, I wasn't a big fan of, uh, of speech therapists. <laughs> I didn't, you know, as a kid, the only uh, experience I had with speech therapists was in a therapy room and I was the only kid in there and they mm -hmm. were treating my stuttering. And so I grew up thinking that that's all they did was treat right. kids who stuttered. And if they, if that's all they did, they didn't do it very well. Uh, <laughs> you know, they weren't, I had, I had five years of speech therapy grades two through two, three, four, five, six. Yep. Yeah. And so when I got involved, I wasn't a real uh, fan of speech therapists. I didn't have a soft spot in my heart for them at all. And so I began to have more respect for, for speech pathologists when a few of them who were brave enough to come to some of our conferences early on, uh, I remember Catherine Otto Montgomery and a few others, and we'd sit up till the wee hours of uh, the morning in the bar somewhere else talking about studying, what I began to understand was that they weren't bad pe people. They weren't ignorant. I mean, they weren't stupid and they weren't uncaring. It's just that they didn't know very much about the phenomena of stuttering. They didn't know what it was like to be a person who stutters, but they were interested in finding out. And so I began to um, accept them by what I call exception. <laughs> They're all stupid except for this one. She's not. Oh, stupid. man. You know? And then I'd meet another one and say, well, most of them, but I've met a couple that aren't so bad. And so before long, the more I became educated uh, about stuttering myself and involved with the professional community, 
and got them more involved in the NSA, we began then being able to do children's programs. There's a point to my story. Uh, it goes back to what you were talking about. Yeah. Because we couldn't do children's programs. We're not, you know, we're not equipped to do that as, uh, as lay people. And so we incorporated and encouraged the professionals within our organization to help us with setting up family programs. But right. what I learned very quickly, Tim, was that we take care of the kids. You know, the kids are in therapy at school. They get, they get uh, uh, assessed and they get screened. Or they don't screen anymore, but they get assessed. And they get assigned to a therapist. And so, you know, the kids are, quote, unquote, taken care of. But who do the parents get to talk to? You know, yep. who takes care of them? They're, yes, their child may be the only one in that school who stutters, but that yep. means they're the only parent of a child in that school who stutters, who knows nothing about stuttering themselves, uh, to really speak of. They're not in therapy with the therapist, so who yep. do they get to talk to? And so the self-help, what happened in the NSA is that the parent groups, the family chapters just became incredibly important and mentoring other, other parents. So yeah. it leads back to what you were talking about. I think that in situations like that, sadly, it's because the parents are, 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 don't know what stuttering is. They haven't been helped to understand the phenomena and they're afraid. Yep. And so they want to protect their child and it's not their fault. It's pretty natural, but I think it's incumbent on us, you know, both y'all as professionals and us in self-help and, and support groups to find more ways to, to educate them and get them good information because knowledge overcomes fear. Very good. I have so many stories of, college-aged people who stutter who got to college and they're in a crisis they'll either reach out themselves or their parent will maybe reach out to me and say my son just got into college or my daughter just got into college and we don't understand why but the stuttering has absolutely blown like a volcano and my child's freaking out can you help and you and I know they, like you said, you moved away from home and you're amongst all these strangers, but there's usually a backstory too. In many cases, the parents did talk for the kid. So I agree with everything you said. I also, we want to give tools, have the kid disclose they stutter, maybe talk to the class about stuttering and then get the courage to order food for themselves to introduce themselves at the registration table for a sports event, like walk up is sometimes parents have short-term thinking like this moment could be embarrassing for my son, this very moment at the same time, let's support this child to have that mo to actually go up and speak for himself. Otherwise there's a big mess to clean up later. I had a big mess to clean up later. It sounds like you did too. Um, so, and it comes back to the courage and reducing fear that would make this all kind of come together. Um, and you actually married an SLP. What were you thinking, man? You're a guy who stutters, <laughs> who marries a, who happens to be a stuttering specialist. What's, what, what were you thinking? Well, uh, what was I was thinking is that I turned out to be the luckiest guy in the world. I know. 
uh, you know, I met uh, Nina through our involvement uh, in uh, nonprofit work with the National Stuttering Association. And, um, you know, we both have a passion for this uh, phenomenon, this condition, um, mm. you know, her in a, in a uh, professional sense, she's uh, an inc incredibly accomplished, as you know, as both a yes, clinician, an author and uh, does a lot of, a uh, lot of teaching and seminars. She works primarily in the schools. And so she's pretty accomplished. And, and, you know, I've been, I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, I've been able to have a career that I truly love and I get to do when I come home from my clinic, I'm retired now or semi-retired at least, mm -hmm. when I'd come home from the clinic, I would get to do what I have a passion for. Uh, and that's help others um, who stutter like myself and families. And, you know, I just, um, I've just been very blessed. That's great. So again, it comes back to getting involved in the self-help group community also brought you a fantastic wife and woman. That's absolutely. That's great. So you've seen, I think we, I mean, I think it goes back to 1998 when ASHA removed the clock, the clock hours for stuttering treatment where yeah, there used to be, there used to be mandatory contact hours with people who stutter. When that was removed. Can you explain the impact it had to the teaching at the university level of graduate students um, and how that has impacted the treatment of stuttering? Well, it's a, it's a very sad and unfortunate uh, happening that occurred. Uh, I think it was in 94. Okay. Uh, when when that happened, they, they they used to require 25 clock hours each in articulation, fluency, and voice uh, in terms of clinical hours, and then they combined them to have 25 hours. But it could be mix or match, and everybody took articulation because stuttering is not easy. And uh, gradually over the next 10 years, um, fewer uh, experts, if you will, were available to teach courses in stuttering. Uh, students weren't getting as much clinical practice. And then again, what happened in uh, 2004, um, uh, or 14, I guess, uh, to, uh, I think 2004, they uh, changed the standards again and went from what they called a prescriptive um, standard, meaning you had to have so many hours of this class and that class and uh, the certain curriculum to what could be called an outcomes-based process where they simply said, these are the, these are the, here's the knowledge uh, that we want all the students to graduate with and here's the skills that we want them to graduate with. We don't much care how you do it. Uh, we're not going to tell you how to do it. This is the university programs. Uh, this is ASHA telling them mm -hmm. uh, these are just what we want. And what started happening was that um, students could actually graduate with a master's degree in speech pathology, having never had a course in stuttering, having never sat in front of a child or an adult who stuttered. And yet they graduate and go out into the workforce and are put in front of an individual, usually a child in a school or elsewhere who stutters and they don't have a clue about what to do. Yep. 
Um, sadly, um, that has not gotten any better. Uh, yep. I, was, I was hopeful for a few years that things were going to get better, but um, I was, uh, it was an illusion that what happened is I started hanging out with really smart and really brilliant folks involved in the stuttering community. I surrounded myself with the experts and the really passionate folks. And I got to thinking, you know, almost like it was when I was a, a fluent stutterer, <laughs> you know, I got a little overconfident and I was thinking things were going to get better, but sadly they have not. I know. Um, when there's no mandatory clock hours in stuttering, obviously, well, I hate it, but less people actually teach the topic. And then less people who might be pursuing their PhD are interested in stuttering because they may not ever be able to teach a class dedicated to stuttering. And the trickle down effect's devastating. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. Uh, the doctoral programs, and you know, they went through a real downspell. They're, they're getting to get a little bit better now. But the other thing that happened was not just the loss of clock hours and the change in the curricula, but the the scope of practice for speech pathology continued to expand. You know, in the, in the 1950s or and even earlier on, there were only four four uh, disorders that, that, that oh, were taught. Yeah. There was uh, fluency, articulation, language, and voice. And that was it. Well, now there are nine areas. Mm -hmm. They call them the big nine. So now students have to not only be, have knowledge and skills in all of those nine areas, but they also have to, are supposed to have knowledge and skills across all ages in all yep. those conditions and all cultures in all those conditions, it's impossible. It can't right. be. Our praxis exam, the, the board examination, when you finish graduate school, you might be hit with things on hearing impairment, cleft lip, cleft palate, voice disorders, stuttering, dysphagia, if I haven't said it, autism, articulation, language, selective mutism let's throw i mean it's it's amazing and there's in graduate school if graduate school is two years two and a half years there's no way that you can um, be good at all of those things but no but that's tim that's why it's so critical you know and and that's one of the things that helped me to to understand uh, the speech pathology profession uh, and have more sympathy for them. That's, again, as I was a kid, I only thought they did stuttering. But when I realized their entire scope of practice, what I realized is that um, it is up to us. It's up to us, those of us out in the community, those involved in self-help and support, those involved in the, in the stuttering community at large, and the professionals that specialize in stuttering. And uh, even if they're not specialists, just those that have a special interest in stuttering, it, it's up to all of us to educate those who are not. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to be done in a university setting. It can't be. You know, I'm, I'm licensed to treat anything that's non-human. Can you imagine that? As a veterinarian, I am licensed to treat anything that is non-human. Well, I don't know beans about snakes. <laughs> mm. um, and it would be a mistake for me uh, to treat a horse or a cow these days. You know, I self-specialize in small animal medicine and surgery, mm -hmm. and that's what I—that's what I became, you know, uh, an expert in, if you will. But 
But the scope of our practice, farm animals, uh, companion animals, laboratory medicine, research, all of that, it's impossible. So you have everybody self-selects when they get out of school. And um, the problem is, is that they just don't have enough education or experience. We have to take up that slack. We just have to. In all of my years now, it's 28 years of doing this. I think everyone I've ever met in the field has gone into the industry to help people who have trouble communicating. I mean, why else would you do an undergraduate and a graduate, maybe six to seven years and take out student loans, right? right? Unless you care about helping people who have difficulty. And at the end of any of my workshops, one of the quotes I put up as my final PowerPoint is, the effectiveness of your life is determined by the effectiveness of your com- communication. And I thank my audience. I tell them, you know why I do this. I grew up with a stutter that it totally controlled my life for like 25 years. You know why I'm here. I said, I admire you that you have dedicated your life to helping people, even though maybe you never had difficulty talking or reading or learning. So hats off to all of you. I love that. And when an SOP, a new one goes into the school system and has a couple of kids who stutter on the caseload and has never treated stuttering, never got a class, the things that you just said, I'm seeing a lot of what's called pulling at straws. Maybe they go on the web and they just pick up something. Again, they want to help. They'll never do something that they know intentionally is harmful for the child. Unfortunately, they'll come up with some stuff that maybe you thought was a hundred years ago, like saying an H before every word or take a really big breath, then let all of your air out and then squeeze that word out. (gasps) (sighs) So pulling at straws, um, So that is the trickle-down effect of poor education and training at the graduate level. And then we all know that very few programs, if any, do a really top-notch job at cognitive behavioral therapy. You started getting speech therapy, and then you faced the dragon, becoming a veterinarian and self-help group. So you did a lot of your own CBT. You reframed your thoughts about stuttering. You changed the meaning of stuttering. And that's another thing that if you treat stuttering, you know, the anxiety component, the fear and avoidance, as soon as you start asking the right questions, the child will tell you everything he or she is not doing. I don't raise my hand. I want to be in a play, but I won't. And so forth and so on. So that's another missing piece. And stuttering and many different things like a a profound lisp, for example, it can be very embarrassing. And so we have to be counselors too. So you have your, you know, in the, you've been in the community so many years, you've seen the stuttering therapies, the summer camps for kids that are popping up left and right, self-help groups. What What do you think we need to do if you want to add something more about how to get these planets to align better. 
I think we we have to continue talking with each other. We have to con continue working with each other, communicating with each other, and understanding each other um, much better. Uh, you know, my concern is that there I, I, I sense a a movement of sort of anti-therapy again, um, kind of raising its head within some of the self-help community, and that's a concern to me because I think it's it's counterproductive. I think that for us to move forward in the understanding and treatment of stuttering, it really takes all hands on deck and it takes all of us to have an open mind to understand that there's not one size that fits all. And all of us are on are at a, kind of a, a different place in our journey and to have compassion and understanding, not only for those that, are, that, that suffer from stuttering itself, but I've, I've often said those affected by stuttering, that not just mm -hmm. me and you, but our families, uh, our siblings, our teachers, the, the right. school bus driver, the coach, anyone who comes in contact with a child or an adult who stutter is affected by stuttering. And we have, to, we, we have to continue working at this. The, the clinicians, the educators, the researchers, the self-help community, the volunteers, the parents, we all have to continue working together and, and um, uh, talking with each other. There's going to be a lot of different opinions and, you know, different approaches and people feel very strongly about one thing or another or how they do things or, uh, you know, what we should or shouldn't do. I mean, everyone has an opinion and that's okay. We have, but we can't, uh, we just can't draw these walls between each other. It's, uh, it will set us back uh, 50 years. Yeah. I'm sure you've read the book, The Feeling Good Handbook, right? Uh, no, no, I haven't. No, I haven't read that one. It's David Burns. Uh, oh, I know him. Yeah. Yeah. A behavioral guy. Right. So David Burns is a psych psychiatrist yeah. who for decades treated people with no, um, treated people with anxiety or depression without medications. Right. And he has the top 10 forms of twisted thinking. And number one is what's called black and white thinking, seeing things either or. Right. Black sure. or white. And, black and white. All, yes, I remember that. Yes. So one of the things I think you started you know, to mention is that the pushback against speech therapy. One example I've seen is people saying that you shouldn't use words like attempt to control stuttering or use strategies or the word fix. And if a kid's five years old and their head's going up and down and they're blocking and they're running out of air and they've already begun to avoid, a functional word for that little child is the word fix. Like when the pencil sharpener top comes off, you fix it. When the zipper's stuck, on your sleeping bag, you fix it. When something, a sock is stuck in the drawer, you fix it. And if I have a massive block, I kind of fix it. If I say, hmm, I can't use fix, but I can use the word release. Well, if you're five, you don't know what that means. So we can get caught up in saying things like you should never use the word strategy, technique, control, or fix. But then we in our industry can be guilty of black and white thinking. And 
a lot of times in the self-help community, one of the expressions is to stutter more easily. Everyone, no matter what school or camp they're in, people who stutter want to stutter more easily. They would like to get rid of facial grimaces. I used to spit when I stuttered on P's and B's, and some of my friends would say, say it, don't spray it. Those were humiliating. When my chin went, my face went down to one side, I would push so hard I would spit. And I had to learn something called a technique, uh, control it, uh, stutter more easily. So we got to be, you know, we have to be careful with black and white thinking within the industry. I think anyone who has profound blocking, like I used to have, it sounds like you had, wants some physical reliefs from the symptoms of stuttering. That is sometimes our first impression. As I walk into the restaurant to give my last name to the hostess table, I would prefer not to close my eyes, throw my head down, and, and have a silent block like I used to. And so I think that's my, my, my little soapbox there. Mm-hmm. I, I really, we have to be careful. Only, yeah, I, and I, I understand, and I agree with a lot of what you say. What mm-hmm. you're saying. I, I guess my, my, not a concern, but I think words like fix um, uh, oftentimes can be interpreted by parents or even by kids or young adults or adults for that matter, that, that they're going to, we're going to fix the stuttering. It's going to yeah. go away. Um, and as a parent, I mean, that's what we do with our kids and that's what mm-hmm. dads do. They, they're supposed to fix things, right? <laughs> Something's broken. And so to fix something would suggest that something's broken. Well, you know, we people can talk about these, how we interpret uh, um, stuttering all day long. Yes. Everybody has their own opinions, but we have an unstable system. You know, we're, our speech communication system developed yeah. And no matter how it developed in a variety of us, it's a little unstable. And yes. as a result of that, we get stuck uh, in a variety of different ways and different times and different places. We don't all stutter exactly the same. Yes. Uh, the pathways are probably going to be different. There may be different genetic structures, different neuromedia. And, you know, we get into the real science mm-hmm. and the real um, be behind the scenes stuff. So I think, the the concept of helping certainly and trying to figure out ways to to move and not get stuck so uh, uh so desperately of course that's what therapy is all about yeah i totally agree with you that the word fix can presuppose that something's broken and i would never in a million years with an older kid an adolescent teenager adult use that word. Mm-hmm. If it's a four-year-old, grandpa stuttered, dad stutters, the child is in a crisis, and it's a working vocabulary word, similar to a stuck zipper, you fix it. I'll actually put a sock in a drawer and have a kid, you know, pull on it, a zipper on a suitcase. <laughs> so it's a functional word. Patience achieves more than force. And The child at age three or four does not make the leap. Hmm, we use the word fix, therefore I'm broken, you know? And the parent is understanding that, and right now I'm talking about little kids, preschool kids, 
who have a stutter that's so significant that therapy is warranted that they learn kinesthetically through sensory. That's how they taught themselves to walk with no instruction through trial and error. But those are gross motor muscles, your legs. They go from the sofa to the coffee table to the ottoman and one day they're walking. Trial and error through the kinesthetic sensory system within the body. And that's how they can be relieved of some of the severity um, it's the only way to teach. You would never tell a kid who's three years old, okay, this is what's happening. You're having a spasm in your larynx, sometimes called a speech block. And when you inhale, you exacerbate the symptoms. And that's why your eyes are blinking. So stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that. But um, I know the word fix is real prickly. So I'm making it, I'm framing it specifically with a metaphor with a preschooler. People who stutter are not broken. They're just as good as someone who doesn't stutter. It took me a long time for me to feel anything normal. I get that too. How does stuttering make you a better person, Lee? Oh, goodness. I'm not sure it did. <laughs> I'm not sure I am a better person. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that I would frame it that way, Tim. Okay. I think how I would frame it is that stuttering has provided me an opportunity to live a life with a certain challenge that has in turn allowed me to grow in, in, in ways that I never could have dreamed to be able to um, help myself, help others, uh, it didn't lead me to my career because that was separate track, but it, it helped me and in, get involved in the community and stuttering. I've met so many people, so many incredible people, uh, mm -hmm. clinicians and, and scientists and just f hundreds and hundreds of folks who stutter their kids through these many years, it has enriched my life beyond measure that I, I never would have had these kinds of experiences and opportunities had I not stuttered. Do you think you have more, more compassion and empathy because you stuttered? I don't know because I've never not stuttered. Oh, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, we say that a lot. Um, I, I just, I don't know the answer to that question. I just know, that I have a lot of empathy and um, I have a lot of caring, but I'm in a caring uh, profession just like you are. And maybe that's just my nature. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I got a hunch that one of the, the, the silver linings uh, within stuttering for you would be above average compassion and empathy. And it could have, played out with a pet owner who was hurting. It surely played out in support groups and stuff. So just a hunch. What does stuttering mean to you now? We talked about what it meant to you as a child. What does it mean to you now? Well, stuttering, uh, interestingly, um, I have begun to stutter more in the past three or four years than I have in the past 20, I think, or 30. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been an interesting thing for me to observe and to sort of document in my own head. Uh, some people say that, you know, their stuttering gets much better as they get older. And I think mine did for many, many, many years, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering now as my brain is aging and I'm aging, um, you know, if some of the, the pathways that I, you know, helped to develop through therapy and other means that sort of, um, I don't know, uh, short circuited or circuited around the, you know, well, it's a metaphor and it's not, as you know, it's much Mm -hmm. more complicated, but I oftentimes equate with young people or parents, the idea that stuttering, if you think of a you know, the science project in, in school where you had a light bulb on one end and a little battery on the other and wire between it, and you hooked up the battery and the light came on. But if you took those wires and you rubbed the insulation off of them and put them close together, you might get an arc in those wires and the the, uh, the bulb would flicker. And yes. that's kind of a short, and that's kind of the way it feels when I stutter. Sometimes, uh, and you don't know when that arc's going to occur, but if you change that nine volt battery out for a 12 volt, you're going to get a lot of sparks mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what anxiety and stress does. So the way that, that I tell people that I think myself, I think I sort of spliced around that area through my work with stuttering through my efforts of trying to change the way that I, that I stuttered the way that mm-hmm. I spoke. And I, I wonder if some of those pathways are beginning to, break down a little bit because the other ones never go away. That's why you still stutter. Um, Can I ask a a question? Yeah. You're in Mm semi-retirement. So you're going into the clinic and less talking. There's this pandemic that has halted a lot of in-person communication support groups. Do you think that when you were working full time and you were immersed in talking, and now you're, am I right to think that maybe you're there's less demands on your speech? Yeah, I think that, you know the old saying: if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, I've thought about that phenomenon as well, and wondering if that's a part of it. Could be, um, and you know, uh, because source of course it's so much more complex than just uh, yes. kind of wiring around a short. Yes. Um, And so I don't know, we there's so much to learn about um, communication and and human speech and and feedback and all those kinds of things. I don't know, but it's just an interesting observation that, you know, occasionally I have some real humdingers and they they catch me by surprise. I'm not afraid of them. Sometimes I laugh (laughs) at myself. (laughs) Wow. Where did that come from? Um, but it's, it's just an interesting thing. So my stuttering today, um, I'm kind of grateful for actually, uh, I'm grateful that I, that I still stutter, uh, in in a strange way, because other than the fact that it means I'm still alive. Um, when I talk to groups, when I talk to, uh, my fellow travelers who stutter to larger groups or to speech pathologists, you know, sometimes I don't stutter very much. Uh, well, I not all the time. I don't stutter very much. And I wonder sometimes about my credibility <laughs> as a person who stutters. Mm. Um, if, you know, if, if I've lost my credibility because I don't stutter, uh, like I used to. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad I've still got it. Glad it's still around. <laughs> a person that I think of who 
last, I mean, all the times I've seen him talk, stuttered very little, would be Walter Manning. Yeah. And I haven't seen him in a while. But in every time I ever saw him speak at a conference, I was like, that dude used to stutter, you know? And mm-hmm. so but you can tell you can tell by the stories, the depths of the stories, the depths he had been in. One one of my favorite stories he used to tell was he's really a jock and into uh, white whitewater kayaking. And he equated stuttering to whitewater kayaking, you know, going yeah. into the rapids and and navigating. And some of those metaphors can only come from someone who stutters. But um, interesting story about Walt, uh, since you brought him up, I first met Walt and we didn't know we'd actually met till many, many years later. In 1972, I had started uh, about a year after I'd started my first self-help group in College Station when I was uh, down at Texas A&M. Um, I was real high on self-help and, uh, my therapist, uh, we just thought, well, that was the best thing since ice cream. So she submitted a, um, a proposal to speak at the Michigan state speech and hearing association. Mm-hmm. There was a really good one on Michigan. I love that when that happens. Um, that was plumply. That was good. <laughs> and, um, so we actually, tra- we got accepted and traveled up to East Lansing. I was, a uh, uh, I was probably 21, 22 years old. I was in my second year of veterinary school and I was uh, presenting uh, uh, a talk up there on self-help and how great it was and how it could be combined with therapy and all this. Anyway, it so happens that that evening there was a reception and I offered, or they asked if I would help serve at the bar. They were handing out wine and beer, I think. And there was this other student helping and he was standing next to me and um we were uh handing out wine and beer to the two of the big wigs and as it turns out that was walt manning Mm -hmm. and we didn't know that we till years later we kind of were talking about our own histories and and we both remembered that event it was real strange that's great you know i also want to say i i get asked from time to time can only someone who stutters be good at treatment of stuttering? I say, no, like your wife, your wife, Nina. And um, I know so many people who learn what stuttering really is. And they're wonderful, even though they personally didn't stutter. Right. And I have flaws. I don't know every answer to every question. Uh, one thing, one advantage I have is I, I know where to excavate and dig. I also can run a movie like, hmm, this eighth grader who presents like this, who tells me he doesn't raise his hand. Every time he stutters, he looks away and puts three us in. And then he comes back to the planet. And, you know, I start running a movie in my mind what it might be like, I don't assume, what it might be like for him to be in school, standing in front of the room, meeting new people. And I start running a movie, which helps me to ask different questions that um, my own history, as well as helping as many people as I have, you start to get a gestalt. I'm not saying I always know, and I've been, I've made some false assumptions. Like there's some people 
who read out loud impeccably fluently that you would never imagine based upon their speech pattern, and then vice versa. I went to, I was 23 years old, I was about to leave Wisconsin for Atlanta, Georgia, and I went down to the clinic on campus and I met a woman that I will never forget named Florence Philly. Anyone up there in that part of the country knew, knew Flo on campus. And she gave me some good ideas and help before I moved down to Atlanta. But um, I just had a complete blank on, um, but it's, Having having the history can be helpful, but it's no it's no guarantee of knowing exactly what your client needs. But oh, what I was going to say is, I still have the report. My assessment was uh, 1987, and when I read out loud, my stuttering was 28 percent disfluent, hmm. and my conversational speech I think was 26 percent disfluent, and I was a huge word changer and I put fillers in just um, like try not to stutter. When they asked me to read the robe came off and it disclosed all of my stuttering. They were like, Whoa. So anyways, I guess uh, digging it, it, it helps. It helps to know where to dig and maybe what what challenges the child is, is going to have in in his day in day life right now this year as well as being in the future? I've, um, always, I've always said that um, kind of another uh, sort of a quip and uh, that and I don't mean this literally, but when I talk to speech pathologists, so many of them are are they do get it and they're working very hard. But on those that that are just trying to learn more, I tell them that they can't get stuttering out of a child's mouth until they get it into their own. Yep. And, um, and obviously I don't mean that they're going to cure stuttering of the child. And, but the, the point is, is that if you really want to understand stuttering, you have to get down in the dirt with us. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you have to not just treat the mouth or the you know, the, the larynx or the diaphragm, you have to treat the whole kid. And in order to do that, sometimes you have to put yourself in situations, uh, and do some, some real honest to goodness, voluntary stuttering on your own, uh, and see what it feels like. So, you know, the ones that are really good and there, there are, you know, a lot out there, not as many as there should be, or, uh, but, uh, they're the ones that really get it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was you, you you went there that everyone that treats people who stutter should go out and do fake stuttering, sometimes to the extent where there is a reaction from their listener. Yeah. Um I went out to to Eastern Eastern Washington University in ninety one as a graduate student and got three weeks with Dorv and Breitenfeld. And day one, I mean Dorv's I'm going to guesstimate about five foot nine, but he's a Goliath. Um, what I mean is day one, we go down on campus. There's about 10 people who stutter. There's two, two cl- clinicians per person who stutters. So we got this big group where are we now like 30, 35 people. And he 
says, okay, we're going to start walking around campus with the clipboard and stop people. And you, you know how this works. And right. I looking around at the audience, I just kind of looked at people's faces. It was almost as though they were looking down in the storm, the storm drain for that clown in, in, in the movie it, I mean, they, they were terrified, but he goes up and he really believed in doing significant stuttering. He would walk up and go, hi, my, my, my name is D -D -D Dorf. You know, I stutter. Can I ask you a few questions? So he is advertising his stuttering. And then we go to shopping malls. And I was like, even though I was in grad school and even though I had so many years of my own stuttering, I was like, wow. This guy's a gladiator. <laughs> and Seriously. I have yeah. never met anyone in my life who was so ironclad about his stuttering. Um, incredible, incredible guy. Um, but I want to come back to the beginning of this uh, as we're winding up, the beginning of this, that I was or 25-ish, uh, I don't know, that, that doesn't matter. But here I am, I am in the reptile house, touching the snakes, working at a front desk of a hotel in a major, major, uh, a 1,200-room hotel in downtown Atlanta, pre-internet, check-in, check-out only. And I learned of this guy named Lee Reeves, who's a veterinarian, who's facing, I knew, I knew you were facing your stuttering, because I knew I was, I had to, and I wanted to meet you. And I probably called you. I, I probably got sick before I called you mm -hmm. and stuttered my butt off and said, Hey, would you come to Atlanta and do a talk? And I'm so glad that you did. And I want to thank you because I've told, I've told your story to, to people who stutter for years, and sometimes I do fluff it up a little bit. Um, anyways, um, you're one of the people that you, you didn't know this, but you were one of the people that got me to face my stuttering. And then I ended up jumping into graduate school. So I want to thank you so much for that. Well, uh, Tim, you are, uh, you are a tribute to your profession. You have uh, done incredible things um, with your career uh, and have helped a lot of people. And it is a privilege uh, to call you friend. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. So I want to thank you for your time. This, this, this is a lot. We've, we've covered a lot of different things. And I wish you... Uh, good health and in, in, in getting through this crazy pandemic. I can't wait for state conferences and ASHA and Camp Say and the NSA convention, Camp Shoutout, all of these different things to resume. Face-to-face, um, -face, this is so much more powerful. Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're social creatures. And while, um, you know, I think we're incredibly fortunate to have uh, the technology of Zoom and, and Facebook or FaceTime, whatever it is, <laughs> these technologies. Exactly. I, I think we're incredibly fortunate to have them. They, um, they, nothing can replace 
face to face human interaction and in groups and getting right. the energy of other people. Um, it just, they, I can't wait for these things to start up again. Yes. Uh, and I hope it won't be long. Yeah. An example is at the, at the NSA conference, the open mic. Yes. Right? You can walk up in front of a room and no matter how your words come out. And even if you cry, as you say them, the people are going to catch you and they're going to hug you and all of these camp experiences. So. Oh, it's amazing. I was, um, I, uh, I was honored to talk to Vivian Siskin's uh, class the other night, mm-hmm. um, up in, up in Washington, uh, from down here. And, uh, yeah. it was one of the more, uh, difficult, um, presentations or situations because you can't see all the students you see on my screen i'd see you know maybe eight or ten but there were 30 or 40 in the class and my screen doesn't hold all that and you just don't get that energy uh it's very hard to to to, you know you don't know if you're if you're connecting or not so while i'm very grateful and to to have those kinds of technologies i um i can't wait to get back to open mic i agree with you yeah Lee, thank you so much for your time tonight, and I hope to have this posted online very soon. My, if people are looking for my podcast, it's Stuttering Solutions Atlanta. I don't know how I thought of that, but I was pressed to. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's on Spotify and Pandora and Google and Apple and all those different things. So thank you again, Dr. Reeves. Thank you, Tim. Good night, it's been sir. A real pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you.